It was Advent of 2012. It was the week before Christmas. The last place a person should be when they work in a church is out of the country the week before Christmas. But the associate pastor I worked for thought it would be a great idea to schedule a mission trip to Guatemala. So there I was with my wife the week before Christmas. Over the previous year, our congregation had raised a quarter of a million dollars to build a community center and a water sanitation system. Because of the four-plus-hour drive from Guatemala City to this village, mission teams rarely stayed more than a few hours, just enough time to help build a stove in someone's home and then snap a self-virtue-signaling selfie before the teams had to head back down the mountain to their hotel. Our team was staying in the village for the entire week in homes that had been given up by their owner so that a bunch of do-gooding Christians had a place to lay their heads at night. The floors in these homes would barely be considered poured concrete. I park my car on better surfaces than the owners of these homes parked themselves day after day. The work was backbreaking. We worked alongside tradesmen of the village and neighboring villages. We, these do-gooding Christians from inside the Beltway, we were day laborers. Day laborers, though, outfitted from head to toe in new gear from REI, while our local supervisors wore shoes that you all might have donated. They were used, and then used again, and then again, and again as they made their way up the mountain to this village. And while this community lacked access to modern medical care, our entire team, all 20 of us, arrived with prescriptions for napalm-grade antibiotics to destroy whatever might be destroying us during the trip. After a day of digging footers by hand and mixing concrete and what being called a bucket would be generous, we missionaries ended our day of labor, yet our hosts kept working, making meals for us, pouring baths for us, and not telling us, but we could see out the window of the homes we were staying in. They were fixing a lot of the work we had done throughout the day. We ate more food at each meal than these people, our hosts, would eat in a day. A tiny village, like the thousands of other tiny villages like it around the world. It would be the first place that I truly felt the hospitality of the gospel and saw for myself the place where God chose to enter human history in flesh and blood. O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel. Before the birth of Jesus Christ, Bethlehem was a town of little consequence. Another village you might pass as you made your way north toward Jerusalem. You could call Bethlehem a one donkey town that had its time to shine. After all, you all know this, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz all walked the mean streets of Bethlehem. David, the giant slaying king, hailed from downtown Bethlehem at the corner of 2nd and Main. This town, just five miles south of Jerusalem, had its place in Israel's history. But now 
the prophet Micah declares the Messiah will come from a town many had not thought of since David's death. How could it be realistic to think that the Messiah would hail from David's hometown when David's dynasty had come crashing to the ground generations earlier? For Israel, the peace that Micah spoke about at the end of verse 5 came through the sword of the Roman Empire, Pax Romana. For God to do what the prophet promised God was going to do, and the place the prophet said God was going to do it, does not add up. Then, there's the one through whom the Messiah would come. Mary, a woman of minor status in her day, would be the one to bring God's earth-shaking good news into the world. God's great turning point in history is near. And ground zero for this event is the womb of a woman no one had ever heard of in a town no one had thought about for generations. Elizabeth's son, though, John the Baptist, knew exactly what was going on as he leaped for joy in his mother's womb. And Mary's Magnificat, a lyrical poem full of Hebrew Bible prophecy and praises for God signals the fulfillment, not just of one of God's promises, but all of God's promises. During my Advent trip to Guatemala, I realized that while the good news of Christ's embodied life fills me with joy, fills me with good news. It is even better good news for the people of a nowhere village than those of us who live in an empire, live in the empire of our day. For people who live in the empire, with all the privileges of Pax Romana or Pax Americana, those same privileges can blur our vision and prevent us from seeing that Christ would not be born at Virginia Hospital Center or Arlington Hospital. Mary's Magnificat was not sung here in Mount Olivet United Methodist Church. It wasn't sung in the temple. It was not sung or spoken at the National Cathedral. No, her song of praise and servanthood was spoken, sung in the backwoods as her cousin. And she lived under the boot of the empire. We often like to say in the church that God does not, does not take sides, but God did just that in Bethlehem and through Mary. In flesh and blood, God has taken the side of those on the margins, with those who are pulling double shifts only to barely be able to put food on their table, with those working in the fields, providing food for the empire, all the while not being able to come out of the shadows Mary's boy, with a birth certificate stamped in a one-donkey town, takes the tidings of comfort and joy we sing of and amplifies them to those who are overlooked, forgotten, and ignored. God is revealed in the places and in the people that we least expect. We might expect God to be announced in a grand, ornate space or sanctuary, and yes, I believe through preaching, especially, God is revealed in these spaces. But as the prophet Micah said, and Mary and Elizabeth reveal the embodied presence of God, God in flesh and blood, God with 
the aches of humanity will take place in a town of little consequence and through a person that many overlook. And this is what makes the good news of Advent and Christmas good news for all of creation. God did not enter human history through power and influence as we would describe them. Mary's song of faithfulness along with the words of the prophet invites us to look for the hospitality, love, and redemption of God in the places and in the people we least expect. Off-the-map places, like Linnea told our kids, and the people that we choose to overlook. Swiss theologian Karl Barth notes that God did not choose the pride-filled, the historically strong or influential at the first advent. Instead, God chose Mary, whose response was faithfulness, thanksgiving, and praise. Mary is the example for the church today for what we are to embody as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ and as we await Christ's promised second coming. Expecting God to be revealed in grand sanctuaries, yes, but also in one donkey towns that the rest of the world has forgotten. The one born in the place that we least expect is good news for us, good news for you. Because the child born into a village with barely poured concrete floors was born for us. Us in our matching REI outfits with our freshly filled Cipro prescriptions and holeless shoes. This is good news for us because while we may have properly poured concrete in our homes, we have hearts that need mending. This is good news for us because while we might live in the center of the map, we still struggle to love our neighbors as ourselves. After all, we still struggle to love ourselves. And where we struggle, God steps in because after all, God has always loved us. God has always loved you. God loves us now. God loves you now just as you are and God will always love us. God will always love you. In Mary's womb, causing John and all of creation to leap for joy, Christ came and Christ promises that he will come again. Amen.